As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Tom Keen and Jonathan Farrow. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business app. That conversation can commence right now. Bloomberg's Anne-Marie Hordern sitting down with the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen. Anne-Marie, over to you. Thanks so much, John. Yeah, we're very pleased to be joined by Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. You join us now from India, where you're meeting your counterparts. It's the G20 finance ministers and central bank governors meeting. And really, the cloud around this meeting is the fresh data we got out of China today. Beijing slowing momentum in their growth. City is talking about uh, the growth target being at risk. I'd like to start, Treasury Secretary, with the fact of whether you think this means there could be an increased chance of a U.S. recession. Well, uh, you're talking about the slow growth number from China. Is that right, Anne-Marie? Yes, correct. Uh, So I think China has seen slower growth uh, than they expected um, upon opening up from COVID. Uh, Consumer spending has been relatively weak. Um, It looks like consumers are more focused on building back their savings buffers. And so growth has been slow. And as you know, youth unemployment um, is quite high there. So I think the Chinese are concerned about uh, sluggish growth in their economy. But what does this mean for U.S. growth and global growth overall? Is the soft landing in the United States still your base case scenario? Well, many countries do depend on uh, strong Chinese growth uh, to promote growth in their own economies, particularly countries in Asia. And um, slow growth in China can have some negative spillovers. Uh, For the United States, uh, growth is slowed, but our labor market continues to be quite strong. Um, I don't expect a recession. I I think that we're on a good path to bringing inflation down. The most recent inflation data were quite encouraging uh, that we're making progress on getting inflation down. But um, as I'd hoped and expected, that would occur in the context of a strong labor market, and we continue to see that. Uh, The labor market's been, the fact the labor market's been so strong has uh, encouraged more prime age people to enter the labor force and to work. And that's helped take a bit of the heat out of the labor market. Um, 
the fact that growth overall has slowed after we enjoyed a rapid recovery. That's normal, but it's also led to some reduction in um, the uh, desire of firms to hire. Still lots of job openings, but Mm -hmm. uh, wage growth is moderating and inflation is uh, subsiding. So I think we're in a good path on the United States. Okay, so it sounds like soft landing is your base case, and you don't think we're going to see a recession. Yesterday, when you were speaking to reporters, you talked about this de-escalation with China, and you ruled out lifting tariffs as part of this de-escalation with Beijing. So what is on the table? You know, several years have gone by in which we've had um, COVID lockdowns, especially in China, and very limited contact between senior officials in the United States and China. And um, we now have a new economic team in China uh, that uh, we need to establish relationships with. Uh, We need to get our relationship back in a more stable place, put a floor under it, and try to promote better understanding between our countries. So uh, I recently made a trip Um, met with a number of senior uh, Chinese officials, including uh, the new economic team there. Uh, We had very candid discussions. Um, Each side raised a series of concerns. Chinese uh, certainly mentioned their concern with the tariffs that we have in place. Um, But we had constructive conversations, uh, deepened our understanding and um, of the economic situation and um, of our concerns, were able to address them and agree that there are a broad range of global challenges, particularly debt and climate change, that affect the entire global economy that we need to work on jointly. And um, I'm hopeful we'll be able to do that more successfully. On tariffs, um, you know, we put tariffs in place on China because we had um, underlying concerns about unfair uh, trade practices, particularly those affecting intellectual property and technology transfer. And those concerns really have not been addressed. Um, Mm -hmm. We're undergoing a four-year required review of tariffs. And of course, China also retaliated putting tariffs in place on us. Um, We have to see what comes out of the four-year review. But I would emphasize um, that really the underlying concerns we have have not yet been addressed, and we need to work on that going forward. But when you're looking at de-escalating, we're trying to figure out what will be left on the table, because what it feels right now is the administration is actually just amping up when it comes to potential tit-for-tat with Beijing. There is the outbound executive order that potentially we could see as soon as the end of July or this summer. Could that be a place pulling a punch from the outbound executive order, maybe making that a little bit more toned down? Could that be a place you could de-escalate with Beijing? Well, first of all, I want to say that what we're doing is not tit for tat. What we're doing is um, putting in place controls that are designed to protect U.S. national security. 
and in some cases to address uh, fundamental human rights abuses. And um, we do intend to protect our national security. We have export controls that play an important role in accomplishing that. And what I try to explain to our Chinese um, counterparts is that our desire is to, to make these uh, U.S. policies clearly national security focused, uh, transparent, and narrow. Um, that we're not attempting to stifle economic progress in China, that we have and want to continue to have uh, deep economic ties. After all, this year our trade has reached almost $700 billion. Um, we right, feel but if that, the national security uh, concerns... economic... Madam Secretary, if the national security concerns are so important, Jake Sullivan called for this outbound executive order two years ago. Why is it taking the administration so long? So we are looking carefully at outbound investment controls, and they would serve as a complement to the export controls that we have in place um, to make sure that we've covered all the channels by which technologies can be transferred to China that we think pose national security concerns. I explained to my Chinese counterparts that if we go forward with these, they would indeed be narrowly targeted. They would focus on a few sectors, in particular semiconductors, quantum computing, and artificial intelligence, that they would contain a combination of notification requirements and in very narrowly scoped um, portions of these sectors, um, prohibitions. But these would not be broad controls that would affect U.S. investment broadly in China or, in my opinion, um, have a fundamental um, impact on affecting the, the investment climate for China. So these would it be national like, security focused. It sounds like it's already done. Is the administration have it finished and is just waiting for a good time to release it? We want to make sure if we do this that we get it right. And we've been working on the details. Um, if we do go ahead, um, and there is a good chance that we will, that we would put out, along with the executive order, a notice of proposed rulemaking so that the public would have a chance to comment on these um, proposed controls and um, we would receive a wide range of public input before finalizing anything that we do. Ma Madam Secretary, you obviously have a lot on your plate when it comes to re-engaging with China and your discussions there just off this trip from Beijing. I'm curious how difficult the dialogue is going to continue to be after the revelations about um, the Chinese hacking of your colleague, Secretary Gina Raimondo. So I do have concerns about um, hacking of U.S. government officials or uh, private individuals or companies 
and I know the United States has expressed those concerns, but we intend to continue to deepen our discussions uh, with China uh, to increase our engagement. It's especially important to um, explain what our motivation uh, is to avoid misunderstandings that can lead to unnecessary and dangerous escalation. Uh, President Xi and President Biden agreed in Bali that um, senior senior officials, including those in economics, um, should interact more regularly. And um, I think an outcome of my trip there was that we will have deeper ongoing engagement at all levels. When did you learn about the China email hacking? I'm curious if you had a chance to maybe bring this up on your trip to Beijing. Um, I believe I did not know about that um, in Beijing. It wasn't one of the things that we discussed. I also want to ask about what's happening on the ground, something that I know is very important to you, and this comes to debt relief of these developing countries. Um, There has been this push from the U.S. administration to use the Zambia principle for other countries like Ghana, but that's not getting the broad support it needs in India on the ground amongst other G20 uh, finance ministers. Is China the holdup here? Well, look, we, we designed, the G20 designed um, something called the Common Framework, which is a set of <clears throat> principles and processes to deal with unsustainable debt situations. And um, we would like to see countries that apply to use the Common Framework get rapid relief from their debt um, that they need in order to grow and be able to attract investment and undertake um, IMF programs that can help to stabilize their economies. And the few cases that have um, applied to use the common framework, including Zambia, have taken far too long. The process has been onerous and it's taken a very long time to get debt relief. We are pleased that China has become, China after all is a major creditor of these countries. Um, We have been anxious to see China move more quickly and take a more constructive um, attitude uh, participating in these debt relief talks. And um, getting agreement on Zambia was an important step. China has also um, been helpful in Ghana, the case of Ghana and uh, Sri Lanka. And I'm hopeful that we'll be able going forward to make more rapid progress. I, I should emphasize that the debt issue is one that concerns the entire G20. And we are united in wanting to see this framework work more effectively, and uh, it is a priority for India as well. Madam Secretary, thank you so much for your time today, live from India at the G20 Finance Ministers and Central Bank Governors meeting, and safe travels to you as I know you're heading off to Vietnam next. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs 
to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Let's push it out and talk about the Federal Reserve for July and beyond. The former Fed Vice Chair Richard Clarida saying market bets for a rate cut in March make sense. JP Morgan's Kelsey Barrow writing this. Rate cuts will need to be preceded by a more material weakening in the labor market. Tom, while we are seeing softening under the surface, we will need to see a further slowing in job creation or a sharp pickup in layoffs to cause the Fed to shift away from the concept of higher for longer. Joining us now, Kelsey Barrow, fixed income portfolio manager that barely describes her duties with Mr. Michael over J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Boy, am I glad you're here. First of all, have you people changed tone, duration, stability, the Fabozzi curve, out, 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 rather Fabozzi out the yield curve, all the different metrics you use, have you changed that view given the news flow of the last 10 days? So I think the biggest data point that is impacting our view has been the recent inflation data. Uh, I think what we've seen there is increased confidence that inflation is coming yep. down. And it's coming down faster than the Fed projects. The Fed has a forecast of 3.9% for core PCE by the end of the year. We think they're going to get there, and we're going and they're going to go even further. Inflation is going to move down even further. Uh, so for us, what we're seeing is the Fed is going to be able to pause, and it's going to be a function of this inflation data coming down uh, faster than the Fed projects. I, I look at this and I say, okay, what's the tactical response? Like, do you barbell? Do you ladder? Do you shift your ladder out, picking up greater duration? What's the do right now? So we've been looking at the fixed income market this question? year. It was a I'm great... Trying to, trying to impress you. Bob's watching. So I just want to <laughs> a great question. And I think all morning I've been hearing you guys debate soft landing or hard landing, right? And what does that mean for fixed income? Well, the good news is, is that regardless of a soft landing or a hard landing, if the Fed is at the end of the cycle, bonds are going to outperform. So you look at the last seven rate hiking cycles, including the ones which were soft landings. That's 1984 and 1995. In all of those scenarios over the next two years, cumulatively, bonds outperformed cash or three-month T-bills by an average rate of 13%. So we can disagree about if it's going to be a hard landing or a soft landing, but what we can agree upon is getting an allocation to core fixed income at this time is the appropriate positioning for an end-of-cycle uh, time for the Fed to pause. Matt Hornback, Morgan Stanley agrees with you, says Barney dips in bonds. Can we talk about the potential limits of a, ran- of a rally? Some people think maybe yields won't fall that far that quick I know that you and the team are looking potentially for 3% across the whole curve can you help 
people who are listening to this right now make sense of that. So right now, the two years at 472, and you think there's potential to get down to 3.0. The 10 years at 377, the 30 years at about 390. Can you just walk us through how you're thinking about that? Yeah, to us, what we're seeing is not that there are limits to the rally. There's actually limits to the sell-off. So if you look at the 10-year yield so far year to date, it's not been able to sustainably trade above 4%. So if you look back, we had a peak at four and a quarter in Q4 of last year. We tried to retest that 4% level in Q1 of this year. It failed. We then tried to retest 4% again in Q2. That also failed. So what we're seeing is that there are limits to how high longer dated yields can trade. And to us, that's a signal that we are later in the cycle. The Fed does have limits to how far they can go. Um, And that is reflecting in this very historic yield curve inversion that we currently see. So later cycle, considering end of cycle, buy core fixed income, treasuries rally got that. Why are high yield spreads near the tights of the year? Yeah, so it has been a grind tighter for credit uh, in general. And so we've been looking with our high yield analysts about what is going on. And there are certainly a lot of cross currents. So if you look across the sectors, right, you're hearing different things across every sector. Every sector is kind of operating in its own little cycle. You hear from the chemicals or technology and high yield. Not so great, right? Then you hear from leisure and hospitality and people can't stop traveling. Everyone on my Instagram is in Europe this summer. I mean, it's incredible. That's funny. Mine too. There you go. Yeah. Um, and so it, what we're seeing ultimately though is that in the absence of a material weakening in the labor market, you're seeing that people just want to get that spread and they just want to get that yield. And on top of that, we've had very little issuance in the high yield market. So the technicals are really there for that grind tighter. And what we found historically is that high yield spreads really don't blow out until the recession is actually here. So this, this move <coughs> is not really that unusual, but it really has been a grind. Do you still see a recession, though? I mean, is it incompatible to see the strength that we're seeing that's underpinning this euphoria that we felt last week and the tighter spreads, as John was mentioning? Is that compatible with a steady grind lower in inflation? So we do see a recession still in the horizon. Uh, We have seen strong labor markets, but it's really important to understand that the labor market is a lagging indicator. So the unemployment rate bottoms right as the recession starts, and the unemployment rate doesn't peak until a recession is ending. So what we're looking at is the leading indicators. Uh, Things like uh, gross domestic income, which is softening below the surface. Hours worked within the, the labor report, which is also softening. And we're saying the five 500 basis points of rate hikes that have already occurred, they're not behind us. They're still impacting the economy. Well, but to John's point, we're seeing spreads right now in high yield bonds at the tightest levels going back to April of 2022. This has been an incredible grind. If credit is a leading indicator, it is saying that we're not going to get a recession, we're not going to get a default cycle, and all systems go when you look at stocks and where they are. So from your vantage point, do you reset and start to allocate a little bit more to riskier sectors than, say, a couple of months ago, when a lot of people, JP Morgan included, saw a more imminent recession on the horizon. So where I would disagree is credit being a leading indicator. In fact, credit, uh, high yield spreads don't actually tend to blow out until the recession is actually upon us. So just because risk assets are doing well now doesn't mean that a recession isn't on the horizon. So for us, Mm -hmm. what we're doing is we're uh, focusing on a high quality fixed income portfolio. So that's investment grade over high Mm -hmm. yield. Another sector we really like right now, agency mortgage backed securities. You can get very 
very attractive valuations there. You get a lot of the spread without a lot of the risk. Hey, Kelsey, most people in the equity space think the bond market's three guys in a room with a slide rule. And in fact, the opposite is true. It's much bigger, much deeper, et cetera. But at the margin, bonds can move off equity valuations. Are bonds competing now with equities? Are people buying particularly credit corporate quality bonds versus owning equities now. Do you observe that? Yeah, we absolutely do observe that. Um, so what we're seeing is that people are taking this opportunity to uh, pick up the yields that are historically attractive. So if you look back, real yields, for an example, are at their highest level in 15 yeah. or 20 years. Um, and this is not an opportunity that comes around very often, uh, particularly in an era where the Fed has had to go to the zero lower bound multiple times in the right. last few decades. What are you guys going to say on issuance? I mean, I mean, I know you take the call, but Bob Michael, they, they, what they do, folks, is when they issue bonds here, some big fancy company, they call four people and one of them is Bob Michael. He's out at lunch watching Liverpool, so you get the phone call. Are you getting phone calls about bond issuance right now? We are. Uh, so there is a little bit of a bifurcation between the markets. So as I mentioned, high yield uh, has been a, a market that has not had very much issuance. On the other hand, you have investment grade market it, it's fully open um, and, and there there is issuance taking place. Kelsey, love it as always. Kelsey Barrow there of JP Morgan Asset Management. Joining us now of experience, David Balin, CIO at City Global Wealth. Uh, David, it's not that we've been here before. To me, it's absolutely original. But what is the character of this bull market? Well, it's a bull market, I think, born of a variety of things. Number one, a lot of exceeding expectations. You know, we, we had started the year expecting that there'd be an energy crisis in Europe that didn't happen. The banking crisis, you know, that you've discussed this morning didn't turn out to be a banking crisis. Uh, growth turned out to be better than expected. And ultimately, what we saw is really, you know, inflation coming down meaningfully. And I think it's very hard to make the argument that next year inflation goes up. What will the source of that be? The last remnants of inflation really are in the area of housing and of rental costs. And we see that, you know, it is possible for us to get to a two to two and a half percent inflation rate in 2024. Now you take all of that mix and you think about where we started the year from investor positioning. We had huge bearish short positions, much worse than we saw in 2008 and 2009. And we had $1.25 trillion of money sitting in money market funds of people waiting to invest or at least thinking they were waiting to invest. And then ultimately what happened, we had this you know, innovative moment where you know, all of a sudden the talk became about artificial intelligence and the impact mm -hmm. it would have markets. That is the combination that's brought us here. And also you know, the backdrop in 2022 is that this was an extremely rare year. Only in 1931 and in 1969 did we see markets, both equities and debt, go down at the same time. So lots of factors, right? right? It contributed to where we are right now and where we go forward, of course, I think is a little bit more difficult because so much optimism is built, built into the market at these levels. Do you have enough combined information from your securities analysts to say yet that we have a better revenue growth line because of a better nominal GDP? Not really, Tom. You know, what our view is that next year we're going to be, you know, one half of one percent higher in GDP in the U.S. It's going to take time for momentum to build. We consider this to be like a rolling recession. So if you imagine that a sharp recession would have a V like this and last for six months, we think this recession is probably a 15 month length and it's just like a shallow, a shallow trough. And if that's the case, it's gonna take a while for us to have you know, a building momentum. 
But what markets are looking to now is what's going to happen in 2024. And, and it's not going to be 2023 where we see revenue growth. It's going to have to be next year because, again, I think these next two quarters are going to be somewhat challenging. In the meantime, David, you said that you're raising your allocation to global equities. Where in particular? When did you start to make a more uh, meaningful shift on the heels of better than expected data? We've made two emerging markets moves. The first one was to Brazil, a specific allocation there. And then subsequently, about a week and a half ago, we added emerging market debt to our portfolios. We really want everyone to you know, think about their cash position a lot and to think about moving from cash and taking some duration risk now, You know, five or six year duration risk, capture the yields that you're getting in your money market fund today for the next five to six years. And in emerging markets, if you don't take a lot of credit risk, you can actually get you know, yields of seven to 8%. And that to us is very attractive if we expect inflation, in fact, to be to two and a two and a half percent next year. How much is that really predicated on the idea of a dollar continuing to weaken? Well, last week was a very important signal, and you've touched upon this in your conversation today. I mean, the dollar really took a move once inflation, the inflation print came out last week. And I think that's indicative of what the world's expecting, right? The U.S. is a much more active you know, uh, central bank than Europe does. Uh, they expect that rates in the United States will come down when they need to. Whereas if you think about the European central banks, they're going to keep their policies pretty constant. And if that's the truth, then you've already seen you know, the beginning of, a, of the weakening dollar and we think that that trend could last for several years from here and that the dollar could be considerably weaker if we were to look out 18 months. I'm told the public is pushing against 60-40. David Balin, does 60-40 work in 2024 and 2025? I'm really back in love with 60-40, Tom. Um, I think that investors have to think about it this way. You're getting paid now for the first time in a very long time to hold a you know, medium duration bond portfolio. If you can make as you know five percent or five and a half percent doing that for five or six years, or you want to take more risk, you can you can really you know earn some terrific yields in emerging markets and in private credit. You should be doing that right now because that is going to have diversification as compared to your equity portfolio. And the second thing people have to be mindful of is that they need to think about the value that they're getting in their portfolio. Mm -hmm. So, I believe we're in a you know in a recovery in 24, but more meaningful recovery. You want to have small and medium sized right. stocks. You want to diversify into areas even like China, right, which are counter cyclical, uh, which are trading at incredibly low values uh, and, and for right. good reason. You know? But ultimately, you've got to be forward looking in your portfolio construction and diversification really is the only free lunch that you right. get on Wall Street. And we think we need to see more of it, less U.S. Right. interest. David, one final question and quickly, unfortunately, David Balin, are we clipping coupons or can we actually own that debt portion for total return? I really think it's the right now, actually, I think you can get it for total return. You're being paid a lot of money to, you know, if you can capture three or four percent real interest rates a year and a half from now, that is an exciting prospect relative to where we've been for the last 11 years. So I do think it, it contributes meaningfully both to risk reduction and to the total return time. And we're emphasizing that to our clients. We're actually seeing some real movement, you know, at uh, at the private bank into you know, into these areas where, where clients are finally saying, wow, I've just got too much cash. You know, I, I can actually put money to work and sustain my yields. David, I just think for a lot of people that have been trapped in cash this year, and I say trapped in cash only relative to the gains we've seen elsewhere in the NASDAQ and the S&P 500, if they're going to come back in, they feel foolish chasing big tech. What do you say to those people? Well, we have to divide that up, right? So first of all, our clients have been sitting there for 10 years waiting to come back into the markets. There's always this idea that you can outsmart the markets, right? You know, and, and so 
the difference between now and any time in the last 10 years is that you want to capture a real yield, right? And and you need to do that now because, you know, when we're talking about it in three or six months, this opportunity may go away with that much cash on the sidelines. In terms of the whole concept of the technology trade, really, if you think about that, take a look at the valuation of the NASDAQ at 26 plus times or the S&P at 21, there are parts of the market that you can actually invest in that are trading at 15 or 16 times, which is totally acceptable if we expect rates to go down. So you want to move away from the trendiest markets right into the mid caps, into the small caps, into some of the foreign markets. And if you do that meaningfully, you know, for five or 10 percent of your portfolio, you'll get the benefit, you know, of, of this sort of total re-rating of the market that we think will take place. But you don't want to time this uh, the situation and say, oh, my goodness, it's all over now because we've had this movement in technology. The type of change we're talking about with artificial intelligence affects every industry and every company and the adoption of it is something that we're going to be monitoring and looking for those companies that actually become more efficient, maintain their margins and drive revenues as a result of AI's, you know, sort of rapid acceptance. David Bailin of City. David, thank you. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward client ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Tom Michaud joins us now. He's the chief executive officer of KVW, Keith Briett and Woods. A Stiefel company, and he understands this American banking system truly like no one uh, we speak to. Off the market, off the March shock, the Keith Briads and Wood Index, I'm stunned by this, off a of dead cat bounce is up all of 4% off of the middle of March shock. I thought it would have done much better. Why are the broader indexes of banks, why is it lagging? It's lagging mainly because the market's unsettled about what the earnings is going to be for the regional banks and for the banks. And there's a reset underway. The first reset is around net interest income and what's happening with deposit costs. I thought it was very interesting that when you looked at the big bank earnings on Friday, which were actually pretty good relative expectations, the stock still went down across the sector. And it's because the view is that we're not there yet in terms of understanding how this remixing is happening in, in, in deposits. Some of the good news is that we're really not seeing big shoes drop on credit. Um, um, but that also continues to be uh, a concern. So I think, you know, KBW for our 2024 estimates for banks, we've cut estimates 20% in the last six months. And I think investors want to know when is that going to stop? 
When, uh, when is this reset to profitability going to stop? Could you help us understand just the size of those banks when you come out with a number like that, 20% drop it's in the estimates? Bi- it's all the it's way the through ones? the industry. All the way through the end. That's up and down. small to large, just up and down. So right just a, if I were to talk about dynamics, if you're just a spread income lender alone, you have more pressure. But don't forget, we think this second quarter is going to be a very difficult quarter for investment banking. Um, they did maybe a smidgen better than we thought, but still, let's just say down 20% at least uh, year over year. Now, we're seeing green shoots in investment banking. That's only about half a dozen or so companies where that really matters. Um, the other banks are just feeling the full brunt of the spread compression, which also impacts the bigger banks, even though the biggest banks are faring better. Have you been surprised by how quickly we've left behind the events of March, April time? I, I, I am, which is in, in good and bad. It's good because the American banking industry is really resilient, and these were idiosyncratic risks, and I think we've proven that. But at the same time, we need the right reform and, and um, actually, in the last quarter, I did testify in front of Congress, and I was urging deposit insurance reform. Instead, we're getting capital increases, which uh, I think are going to create unintended consequences and be a whole nother dynamic. How idiosyncratic, though, was it? And I ask this at a time when a lot of people are studying commercial real estate, including the St. Louis Federal Reserve, which accounts for about half of all loans on smaller banks' balance sheets. And we're looking at a potential record of maturities, maturing commercial real estate loans this year. How do you dovetail that into future weakness that we could start to see in this earnings cycle? So, and I remember the last time we were on, we talked about this. So we have a commercial real estate research group and and higher rates are gonna hurt commercial real estate values everywhere in the country. But the ones we're most worried about are the cities and the cities where they have the big properties. That's where you're seeing the biggest stress in terms of occupancy in particular, where we think that the, the hits may be the biggest. Uh, big news out of Friday, Wells Fargo took their reserve for those type of properties to 9%. 9%, that's a big number for a bank after you think about all the equity that's already in those projects. So that's pretty big. So, But but we had a regional bank that we took around in New York recently to meet investors, about a $40 billion bank. Their median commercial real estate loan was a million dollars and almost none of it in a city. So we feel better about that. And if that describes what a regional bank's por- portfolio looks like, there'll be pressure, but nothing like these big cities where that, they're going to be bigger hits. The last time you were on, we talked a lot about consolidation. You did expect a wave of consolidation among smaller banks. Do you feel differently now that evidently the crisis is over and everything has changed? Or do you feel like we're going to see an ongoing churn of consolidation that hasn't yet transpired? I, I, I think we're going to see consolidation, A, because it's just been the trend for the last couple of decades. Then you ask yourself, why would that happen? Well, it would happen because the costs of regulation continue to go up. And one way to be able to afford it is either to have more scale or to merge with a bank that already has it. So that way you don't have to build it yourself and that makes the system more sound. Also, over time, healthy banks tend to acquire banks that are not performing as well. And that's a healthy step that also happens. Then I think lastly is, and this is a bigger story, 
is over the last decade plus, especially since Dodd-Frank, um, you've seen non-bank lenders pick up market share. We did a report earlier this year where we think banks have about half of the market. Every time capital ratios go up, Vice Chairman Barr talked about a two percentage point change. That's going to benefit non-banks. Jamie Dimon talked about that in his call on Friday. And and that's what's going to happen. And that world is less regulated. I wouldn't say unregulated. Less regulated. Tom, Michelle, all of us on the racket have a bank we just follow. I'm not going to mention the bank, but it's a pure mediocrity of a small bank. And it's called Bank X. Bank X in the last 10 years has delivered 2.2% shareholder return. In the last 20 years, Bank X has returned 1.4% 20 years. Are these guys not put out of their misery because they're protected by an umbrella of government support? Back to Andrew Jackson. When do you, Sandler O'Neill and the rest of them, when do you roll these dogs up? Well, I'll tell you what's interesting is in some cases there may not be a buyer. There's a chance there may not be a buyer. And as technology continues to evolve and there's less branch traffic, for example, um, some of these companies may find there's just not the buyer that so they what think do they is do? there. What, what does Bank X do in their 20-year garbage mediocrity kept afloat, not by KBW, but kept afloat by government regulation? Well, I, and I think the other thing is that should that company need capital because, let's say, they have a bad loan or they need to make an investment, investors are going to look at that. And an industry where where investors don't have strong incentive to invest, if the if that company, and I think this applies to any industry, but if there isn't a return, they're not going to have the access to the capital that the government and the regulators would like. You need a healthy industry up and this down. This is a uniquely American thing, John. I, this is just, I'm sorry. And, and the big thing is, so, you know, and I get a lot of questions saying, hey, other countries have five or six big banks. You know, we have four really big ones. It would be great if we had 15 to 25 big ones. And then he'd have really good choice and really good competition. And then some of those local banks will still be critical to their local communities. I think it's that middle. Here, I'll give you another number. They're 97% of the banking industry in America is below $10 billion in assets. That means there are 140 banks above $10 billion. We're actually approaching the end game where you can start to really pay attention as to how this might play out. I've got 30 seconds. When you went in front of Congress, did you get the impression they wanted to make sensible policy or just punish this sector? Um, I would say the majority... Not the entirety, but the majority uh, was they were thinking about steps that they could take. But I felt as if they were going to address issues that weren't solely Silicon Valley and other bank failures. And the chances for unintended consequences were high. And I think you really got to because if you push too hard, you're going to benefit the non-bank industry. And I think we could be headed in that direction. Thomas Shaw. Thank you. That was incredibly of KBW is a diplomatic response. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the question, <laughs> not so much. They often aren't. Tom, love it. As always, just Great wonderful. Great to be with you. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. 
That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.